Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon. My name is Sean Healy, and I'm the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy for the Civics Now Coalition, which is a project of iCivics. And I'm honored to be the moderator for today's program. The Commonwealth Club, this Commonwealth Club program is part of the club's Creating Citizens Initiative. Other programs in this series can be found on the club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Before introducing today's panelists, I'd like to provide a brief overview of the current state of civic education in the United States. On the heels of the anniversary of January 6, 2021, and amidst ongoing toxic political polarization and institutional dysfunction, it's clear that our constitutional democracy is in peril. Civic knowledge is alarmingly low, with a bare majority of Americans able to identify the three branches of government, actually a historic high, and nearly one in five, 20%, unable to identify any of the branches. Simultaneously, confidence in our democratic institutions has cratered. Confidence in the three branches ranges from 5% for Congress to 16% for the presidency. Civic ignorance and distrust fuel political polarization, registering at the highest levels in the modern era. An NBC News poll released yesterday reveals that 70% believe that the nation has become so polarized that it cannot resolve the major issues of the day. A stunning 76% across the political spectrum agree that democracy and majority rule are threatened. These deeply troubling trends correlate with the generational marginalization of civic education in K-12 schools. According to the Council of Chief State School Officers, 44% of school districts have reduced time spent on social studies in the past two decades. The sidelining of social studies coincides with stagnant student proficiency across multiple iterations of the National Assessment of Educational Progress in Civics, the nation's report card, a stunningly low range of achievement from 20 to 25% proficiency. This neglect of social studies and civics is directly linked to decades-long policies at the state and federal levels, mandating testing of basic literacy, English language arts, and math through funding incentives. Specifically, and as a direct consequence of education policy, civic education has been chronically underfunded both federally and locally. Currently, the federal government invests a mere five cents per K-12 students in civics, compared to $54 in STEM subject areas. This collective evidence makes clear that decades of decline in both the quality and quantity of civic education have contributed significantly to the discord, dysfunction, and widespread disengagement plaguing our nation today. Quite simply, civic education, understanding America's systems of government and its civic structures, behaviors, and expectations, has become a national security imperative in 2022. And that's what we're here to discuss today. I'm pleased to be joined by two people who know this issue as well as anyone. Dr. Mildred Millie Solomon, who's the president of the Hastings Institute. Dr. Solomon has an international reputation for her research on and advocacy for wiser healthcare and science policy. In addition to her leadership role at the Hastings Center, she's a professor of global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School, where she directs the school's fellowship in bioethics. Suzanne Spaulding is a senior advisor Homeland Security in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, Suzanne served as Undersecretary for the Department of Homeland Security, where she led the National Protection and Programs Directorate, now called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, charged with strengthening cybersecurity 
and protecting the nation's critical infrastructure, including elections. I'm pleased to have both Suzanne and Millie here to discuss this pressing subject. And just one important housekeeping tip before we get started with our panelists. If you have a question you want me to ask Suzanne or Millie or both, please put it in the Zoom chat. Questions posted there will be forwarded to me throughout the program. So Suzanne, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to start with you. And uh, picking up on the work that you did at the Department of Homeland Security and the work that you're co currently doing at CSIS, how did this work uh, collectively lead to your assessment that reinvigorating civics is a national security imperative? Yeah, thank you, Sean. And uh, thank you to the California Commonwealth Club for uh, having this important conversation today and for including me in it. Uh, it it's been a real passion of mine for a number of years now, and I've been uh, honored to work closely with Sean Healy and iCivics as we've, as we've uh, tried to bring the national security uh, imperative to this uh, discussion about the urgent need for reinvigorating civics education. And it really, I, you know, I will confess to having come to the battle to reinvigorate civics education relatively late compared to folks like Sean and Louise Dubay and so many others who've been working in the trenches for decades. Um, I was in the national, <clears throat> excuse me, in the national security world for most of my career. And most recently, as Sean said, at the Department of Homeland Security, working to uh, help lead the men and women who were working so hard in 2016 to safeguard our elections. And when I uh, got out in 2017, I did so uh, with the full understanding that what we saw in 2016 in terms of information operations from one of our main adversaries, Russia, was really just part of a broader campaign, a long-term campaign by Putin and the Kremlin to undermine public trust and confidence in democracy and democratic institutions. And fully understood that they do so by by taking advantage of weaknesses and vulnerabilities of our own making, right? And that uh, other nations were, were taking a page from the Kremlin's playbook and increasingly domestic voices. So when I got to CSIS, we really you know, did, a, did a, a focus initially on adversary attacks on democracy and then a deep dive on our justice system because I'm trained as a lawyer and I thought to myself, if I wanted to undermine democracy, Aside from elections, where would I go next? What other institution is so dependent on public trust and confidence in the legitimacy of the process to respect the legitimacy of the outcome? And I thought, of course, of our court system. So we started looking and, and unfortunately found lots of evidence of information operations coming out of uh, the Kremlin, targeting, trying to get Americans to, to weaken their trust in, in our justice system and its independence and impartiality, again, picking up on legitimate grievances. And as we thought about what are the ways in which we can begin to counter this activity, we put out a report on May 1st called Beyond the Ballot. One of the most important things we realized we needed to do, in addition to working with the platforms and all of the other things that you hear about to, to go after disinformation, would be to build public resilience against the content of that disinformation, regardless of the source, right? And so that means understanding what is that messaging all about. It is about getting Americans to give up on the idea of democracy. And that is so much easier to do if Americans are ignorant about the foundations of our democracy. If the goal is to divide us, 
if we haven't had that civic literacy to remind us of our shared values, that, that goal for our adversaries and bad actors is so much easier. If their goal is to get us to conclude, as Putin's is, that democracy is irrevocably broken, then if we haven't been empowered to understand how to hold in flawed institutions accountable and how to be effective agents of change, then we are more susceptible to a message that it is irrevocably broken as opposed to flawed and we must be the agents of moving toward a more perfect union. So that's how we came to this sense of civics was really vital to our national security. Thank you, Suzanne. And I uh, want to turn next to you, Dr. Salman. And, you know, you're in a totally different field, uh, bioethics, and uh, it, there, there is a, a distinct relationship, we think, between the work that you're doing in, in civics, but we often think of civics as just kind of the purview of uh, social studies teachers. I referenced that a lot in my, my opening remarks, um, but I, I'm really interested in what you see as the distinction or relationship between scientific literacy and civic literacy. Thanks very much for having me, Sean. Yes, I think it might be, seem um, unusual for a, a leader in bioethics to be having a conversation about national security, but I, I, I think the connections are actually quite profound, and we're seeing the national security threats in the way in which we've been unable to use public health and, pub and traditional public health measures to um, manage something that science has given us the means to manage. But civics is, is uh, or the erosion of civic learning is standing in the way. Um, your question was about the distinction between the two kinds of literacy. Well, a shorthand response I would give is that science strives to tell us how things work or what causes something. Um, it's descriptive and, and focused on mechanisms of, of causality. Civics and bioethics, actually, are focused on how should we live together? There, there should questions. What do we think um, are the best ways to show respect for one another? What values do we hold and which ones do we want to privilege? Why do we think one policy is more inclusive or fairer or more respectful of human dignity than another? So they're really very different literacies and yet we need them, we need them both. And one of the reasons I was attracted to the field of bioethics is because it actually merges these two. In bioethics, we look at um, the ethical questions raised in the life sciences. Should we mandate vaccines? We've got them now. Science brought them to us. Um, and obviously, it's tearing us apart as a society to figure out whether how we can take advantage of those breakthroughs in science. Well, should we mandate them is an ethics question, and it's a civics question also. And what unites them is that they engage with our sense of what are the rules by which we should live and what are the values that we should be upholding in the policy decisions that we make. Thank you so much. Suzanne, uh, turning back to you, uh, you talked in your, your opening remarks how you came to this issue. You talked about um, how this uh, you, you've deemed it uh, in this decline in civic literacy, a potential national security threat. And uh, you're, I'm really interested in your specific expertise in mis and disinformation and man managing risk around that. Um, how is that similar to, to managing traditional cyber risks that you've, you've done in your previous work? Yeah, well, there's a direct uh, relationship, I think, first of all, between civics and cybersecurity. 
Um, and it, it, it really builds off of Dr. Solomon's uh, really insightful remarks about um, civics that fundamentally having this uh, community aspect, right? How do we live in community? The sense of civic responsibility, uh, I think, and, and, and that needs to be, you know, taught. Um, and the lack of that sense of civic responsibility, I think, has contributed to our public health crisis. But it also contributes to cyber insecurity. When I used to be the um, undersecretary and I would go around the country and I would talk to uh, audiences about cybersecurity being a shared responsibility, right, that we all have to do our part, uh, I would often get a lot of blank looks, um, people not really appreciating the, the, the importance of considering how their actions can weaken their, their family, their community, their nation. Um, but traditionally, I, what I came to DHS to do traditional cybersecurity, not to do disinformation, but to do traditional risk management across cyber and physical, it's, you know, there's a formula we use, threats, vulnerabilities, and consequences. You, you, know, you assess your risk as a factor of all three of those. Then you look at how you can mitigate against each of those. And, um, and one of the ones that often gets neglected is consequences. How do we mitigate the consequences? And that, and you have to understand as you're going after uh, trying to, to deal with cybersecurity, we're worried about Russia today, right? With its, with its uh, threat to invade Ukraine, and we know that will be cyber um, actions. What is your adversary's objective, right? Don't just focus on what is the technique. Really important to think about what are they trying to achieve? Now, how can, what are the consequences they are trying to achieve and how do we prevent them or reduce the likelihood that they can achieve that consequence? And so that's the thinking that I brought to this information operation or disinformation. I, it's not just the techniques. It's not just what platforms are they using and what um, accounts are they setting up and what does that look like? It's also what are they trying to achieve? And as I said earlier, I think they're trying to weaken us by weakening our um, commitment to democracy, our trust in institutions, our ability to mobilize, to take the actions that we need to take to say a strong, uh, robust nation. And, and that's important to understand. So how are we going to reduce their ability to do that? And thank you, Suzanne. And, and just as a reminder, as, as you have questions for the panelists, uh, please uh, put them in the in the YouTube, YouTube chat and I, I will uh, relay them. And I, I think you, you, you touched on this and just as you were concluding those remarks, Suzanne, but what, under, what initiatives have you undertaken to help manage some of those risks? You talked about uh, empowering citizens and their resiliency, but what, what initiatives specifically have uh, you been taking at CSIS to uh, address those and mitigate those those concerns. Yeah, well, we started uh, we, after our deep dive on the justice system, um, realizing that we also need to strengthen our institutions, not not just, um, you know, kind of try to talk to the American public about how great they are, but but to get those institutions to live up to our aspirations, to understand where, why there is this mistrust in those institutions. Um, and, and but also to understand that there is disinformation out there that is specifically targeting public trust in those institutions. So we started out with training for federal judges and for state and local judges. And we worked with the federal judicial uh, national judicial center and administrative office of the courts and the national center for state courts. And we did a whole series of workshops, particularly for the state courts. We reached over 40 states 
um, you know, educating them about the nature of the threat and the things that they should be doing right now um, to be in a better position to counter false information when it comes out. This is not about um, you shouldn't criticize the courts, right? This is about when false information, when disinformation, and when coordinated campaigns to undermine public trust in the courts are taking place. So we've done that judicial training, um, and we continue to do that. We did a whole a year-long program on civics as a national security imperative that was a series of virtual fireside chats, including with Justices Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch, in which they beautifully modeled civil discourse between two people who disagree strongly about issues that they care deeply, right? Um, and yet they managed to have civil discourse, and that's so important. And then they talked, of course, about the importance of the rule of law and, 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 and other really important things. Our very first program was on systemic racism as a national security threat and how civics can help to address that. But a whole series, retired generals, um, we had Bob Gates, so that. And now our newest initiative is called Civics at Work, because while we think investment in K-12 through is vital, absolutely must happen, it's a long-term investment. National security imperative means it's, there's an urgency to this. We have an adult population that has suffered from the decline in civic education in schools. We need to improve their civic literacy and sense of civic engagement and responsibility now. Employers are a good way to get at adults through their workforce. So we have a program where we want companies, leaders, CEOs, presidents of companies to sign up to support civics education at the federal, state, and local level to conduct internal civic literacy activities with their workforce and to conduct external activities in support of civics in their communities. Wonderful. And I know as I was preparing for today's program, reviewed a number of the videos and materials that you put together, but on the CSIS website, you've archived these great interviews you've done and uh, some, some of the uh, journal articles and testimony to Congress that you've prepared. It's all available there, correct? Yep. Yep. And yep. I should say one of the things that I, I don't know we've posted yet, but uh, one of the most recent examples of the national security community coming around to this perspective is the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. It's set up by Congress. Its final white paper was on disinformation and has strong recommendations for reinvigorating civics education. Thank you, Suzanne. So I'm uh, going to have one more question for, for Millie and uh, Dr. Salman, and then I'm going to uh, start uh, posing some of the questions from the audience. And uh, this, is, this is close to home for uh, iCivics. We've been part of uh, a group of uh, over 300 uh, scholars and organizations that put forth a new roadmap uh, for educating for American democracy. And a central hallmark of that roadmap is the principle of inquiry as a way to teach civics, as a way to teach United States history. And Dr. Salman, from where you sit, what's the most effective and helpful way for educators and schools to think about inquiry across science and civics? I know that's something that you've written about extensively. Inquiry is a wonderful and powerful concept. It, it says that education is about guiding students to pursue questions that are important to them and important to our society. And so I think the primary message is that we should be organizing all of our educational activities around compelling questions. And goodness knows we have some very powerful, compelling questions, especially ones that can't just be answered by the individual. I can decide to have an operation or not. 
but I can't decide whether, you know, certain kinds of operations should be made available to the American population. We have collective problems that have to do with decisions about our shared environment and, and inquiry learning that targets those. What are we going to do about climate change? It's not just an individual decision. The vaccine question that's, I do think is a security threat because we've been undermined in our ability to make collective decisions about how to manage this disease. The vaccine question is, is an interesting one because people that are fighting the idea of taking the vaccine are, are coalescing around a civil liberties argument. I was gonna say a specious civil liberties argument, but at least a questionable civil liberties argument, which I think we need to engage, engage with. Um, because the claim is made that I can't be told what to do with my body or I don't, it's up, it's up to me, it's my choice. And a sound inquiry oriented civics education would know some of the history of, the, of where we got our civil liberties. What did different political philosophers think about this? If from the earliest writings on civil liberties, it was always understood that one's liberty ends when it, uh, when it harms another but no one is talking about the harms to others. They're just talking about um, their own personal choices. And also the earliest people to write about rights always also wrote about obligations. Rights exist with obligations. So um, inquiry is saying education is about solving real world problems, especially now in our time, collective problems about our shared environment and it should be driven first by questions. That can take many forms. I'll just say one more thing about that. Mira Levinson, who's a terrific um, researcher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Jacob Fay have written um, a wonderful book about um, ethical dilemmas in schools. And I had the pleasure of writing with Mira in a special report that the Hastings Center published. It's called Democracy in Crisis and people can get it for free on, our, on the Hastings website. And Mira and I wrote about um, how, how to do this in, in schools. And we advocated three things. Action civics, where you take a question, so it's inquiry, you take a question, the kids work in teams to research it, to identify all the different stances and perspectives on it, to come to their own conclusions, to give reasons for their conclusions, and then to take some kind of action step to advance their conclusion. So action civics, really, um, creative ways to engage kids on school boards even, have youth representatives on school boards, um, commissions of all kinds, reinvigorating student council. So out of classroom, but student led activities. Um, and the third is maybe a topic for another question, but it is about the difficulty of teaching American history and how controversial that is, depending on what perspective should be brought in. And there's a lot of inquiry learning in, in that domain of teaching American history. And I'm happy to say more about that if, if that's of interest. Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, as I, I read uh, that report and, and uh, some of the work of uh, the Hastings Institute, and, you know, you started your comments and talking about uh, the pandemic and, and navigating this uh, pandemic and kind of the public information campaign that goes around that. And I, I I, I fundamentally took, I've taken away from the last couple of years, but also from reviewing your writing, uh, that uh, the public in, in a broad sense doesn't necessarily understand the scientific process 
am I right in saying that? Uh, and that, that's so many of the challenges that you're highlighting there. Um, because yeah, there, there does seem to be conflicting information, right? But in some ways we're, we're learning as we go and we're, we're going, we're, we're living this in real time. Absolutely. I mean, teaching STEM is important and, and science literacy is essential. Um, it seems almost as though people had a gotcha kind of attitude in some quarters when Dr. Fauci would change his, his statement about the power of masking, for example, not realizing that science is a process. It's a process of discovery and correction and self, you know, self-correction. It's an iterative process that has certain ground rules for producing evidence and for giving us confidence in the findings, but it's contingent and always changing. We have a kind of, along with a loss of civic learning, we have a kind of absolutism that's coming into our culture um, that is uncomfortable with ambiguity and complexity and uh, evolution of, of thought. And as we reinvigorate civics learning, I hope we will help students develop more tolerance for ambiguity and complexity and less absolutism. Thank you very much for that response. So I'm going to go to the audience. And my, the, the first question that we received uh, focuses specifically on uh, the cultural differences uh, that divide us in this country and whether teaching young people to bridge those differences, and we, we could probably even move beyond culture. There's so many cleavages, right, uh, in our, our democracy that, that define our views about basic issues like the pandemic, right, about climate change, um, some of the issues that Dr. Solomon raised. Um, but should civic education weigh into that? Uh, should, it, should it help young people uh, to bridge those divides? I open that up to both of you. Well, I have two responses to that. The, the divides are, are very much there. And earlier, a few days ago, the Hastings Center held a conference on health equity. And one of the major presentations focused on residential segregation in the United States, which has so many sequelae. Um, the fact that we don't, you know, we have rural um, white America, we have uh, concentrated poverty in some cities with in in uh, and then we have you know white suburbs and we learned a history of why it is that we have a geography like that but also what its consequences are and that means that um kids don't mix it up in their neighborhoods but they also don't interact in schools and now with the increasing wealth gap there's also divides between within those um, racialized and ethnic communities based on um, increasing unconscionable wealth gaps that are undermining our democracy as well because it's very hard to have a robust um, democracy when there is such when there are such extremes of um, material inequality so um, I think I lost my train of thought about where what the question was. <laughs> Is a bridging cultural divides and the the role of civic education. So we're in very different we're in very different locations and we're not going to school together, which is is a, a real a real difficulty. I think another way, though, to try to bridge that is to do something that um, iCivics has been advocating and the roadmap has been advocating, which is to teach hard history, to talk to tell the stories of uh, Jim Crow 
uh, to tell the stories of, of our westward movement and its impact on indigenous people. And back to my amb ambiguity theme, to find a way that we can tell stories for people who may feel disempowered, who may not see their voices reflected, in a, but in a way that doesn't lead to cynicism or despair. And on the other hand, that's balanced with celebration of what an amazing experiment in democracy the United States is, and that is genuinely celebrates that without moving into adulation or false nostalgia. So how do we balance, how do we, you know, chart that path that um, is, is so difficult, it's, but, um, but is really worth the struggle. And I think that would be one way to try to give voice to people who feel that their voices are not being heard. Thank you, Dr. Solomon. Yeah, I, I think that's so right on, uh, Ellie, that, you know, well, I, I think it's so important that we remind folks that the promise of democracy is not that it is somehow perfect, but that it is a, a it, but it's capacity for change, right? That that's why we fight for democracy, because with all of its flaws and we can, and you can hold in your head at the same time, a reverence for, and a, a you can value democracy, even as you are so cognizant of all of the ways in which it has been imperfectly implemented. If you focus on the fact that we are the government, it is indeed a government of and by the people, and that we can be the agents of change if we know how. So civics to me needs to really focus heavily on how can you as an individual be a more effective agent of change, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine the, the future you want and then be, the, be part of making that happen. And that's the promise of moving towards a more perfect union. So, I, so, so that is that activism part. And I think, Sean, one of the ways that you begin to bridge divides, whether it's among adults or, or, or students, is, uh, is coming together around a common purpose. You know, and, and I know, Millie, you've been involved in some of that, Danielle Allen and other, so many others who speak so eloquently about common purpose. Something as simple as picking up trash along the side of the highway um, painting uh, an elderly person's home uh, for them, whatever it might be, if you spend the day in activity with someone who is different than you, and, and at the end of the day, you find out they voted for the other person, it's so much harder to demonize them, right? Uh -huh. um, you know, we can, we can work, civics should work to bring people, to remind people of some shared fundamental values of our democracy in a kind of abstract way. And I think it is important to do that. Um, but realizing that we have a shared value in picking up trash along the side of the highway can be just as powerful. Um, you know, little things like finding out that they root for the same football team that you do, uh, you know, can, can help uh, bridge those divides. Thank you. That, that, that's a wonderful response, both of you. Uh, so a little bit more of a, an international flavor to, to this question. I'm uh, going to... Uh, uh, dedicate this one to, to, to Suzanne. Uh, one, kind of two parts. So, so maybe I'll just ask you to elaborate on some of your opening remarks where you talked about uh, Russian uh, interference and particularly in the context of the 2016 election. 
but what is the role of uh, some of our foreign adversaries in dividing us uh, as, as a people in America? Yeah. So, um, you know, Russia has long uh, been engaged in, in, in exacerbating divisive issues and again, picking up on legitimate grievances. So, so from the dawn of time, actually, they have pushed this narrative that, yes, America is a racist, fundamentally and irrevocably a racist state. Um, and you see that in their information operations and their narratives um, over and over and over again. And it certainly comes up in the context, obviously, of our justice system and the right for the fight for uh, ra- ra- uh, racial justice. Um, that that uh, they take the immigration issue and and drive a wedge, use exacerbate on both sides of that issue. So much of what we saw is when the immigration bumps up against the justice system, Russia is there pushing the narrative that our justice system is soft on immigrants and refugees and puts them ahead of American citizens. And they promote false, there's a awful story in Twin Falls, Idaho, in the summer of 2016, where they pushed a false narrative um, to undermine trust in the justice system. We all know the story of Garland, Texas, where they tried to turn people out on both sides of the immigration issue with, you know, and sent people with weapons to try to have a violent altercation. They want to, they want to uh, uh, exacerbate the protest potential of the population, to use a term from their military technology, uh, or for their military um, uh, doctrine, uh, so that's Russia's, you know, definitely sees that as an important way to weaken us. China sees it as a way to compete on the world stage in places in which we are competing for influence. And what they point to more is the messiness of democracy. Um, and I heard someone the other day very, very nicely put it, disagreement is a feature of democracy, not a bug, um, uh, which is why civil discourse is so important. We value some of that, what looks like messiness, is, is part of what makes democracy vibrant, right? But China really is out there portraying it as broken, as, as, as um, an inefficient way. And they, sure. they, Putin pulls us down. China thinks they have a different model to sell. And you're, you're alluding to this. I don't know if, if the, these messages uh, that Russia and China are driving are what they actually believe, right? But um, there, there has been a, a, a bunch of recent research. I think Freedom House in particular stands out uh, where we, we get a sense of, frankly, the state of our democracy and how others view the United States as a democracy. Uh, what's your sense of how others, both our, our friends and our enemies, uh, perceive us in the state of our democracy. Season. I think they're worried for us, and 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 that worries them, you know, for themselves. I think they want my sense from you know my conversations with folks around the world um, back in the days when I used to be able to travel um, is that they really want us. They want us to be that city on the hill, right? That shining city on the hill. Um, they want to be able to point to this, um, but they but they are very worried. Uh, about the indications of, of uh, vulnerability. And I think we need to take that more seriously ourselves, that democracy is not invincible. It is not inevitable. If we don't fight for it, if we don't understand, learn, take the time and effort to learn how to strengthen our democracy, we do really run the risk of losing it. And I think that is, I think, just as sometimes somebody standing on the outside can see more clearly what's going on in that room um, than the people in it, I think 
oftentimes people around the world may have a more clear-eyed view uh, about the risks to our democracy than we do. And I was stunned, as I said at the top, the polling data from NBC just yesterday were 76% of us, and it was actually over 70% for Democrats, Republicans, and independents um, see our democracy as threatened. So even on the inside, uh, we see that. Uh, Dr. Dr. Salman, and I, I should say, wonderful questions so far. Keep them coming in the, the YouTube chat as, as we go. Uh, Dr. Salman, uh, science and civics share a common characteristic in that each discipline has foundational core concepts. So the three branches of government, as I talked about at the top, how a bill becomes a law in civics, and then, of course, the scientific method, which you've uh, spoken about earlier, the elemental properties, uh, but much more complexity as we go deeper into these subjects in school. How do we build a foundation for that deeper understanding at different ages and in this political climate that we're talking about where complexity is increasingly unwelcome? Well, first, I think we can start very young and talk about the virtues that are required for, de for citizens in a democracy. It, it's the opposite of vitriol and outrage that we are hearing from each other constantly now. And there are programs in schools that I know of that have decided that they're going to make virtues and character development a central feature of, of what kids will take out of their learning experiences from age five and younger even. Um, sort of being explicit about how do we talk with one another Asking somebody who you have who you disagree with to explain their position one more time. Asking the person who thinks they disagree to tell what the other person's position is. So they practice listening and respecting each other. So I think we can and should do this at a at a very at a very early age. Um, and then as kids get older, coming up with these questions that are real world questions. You know, the great pragmatist philosopher John Dewey was very practical in his orientation towards, towards learning. And he felt it was about problem solving in how we live together. Suzanne's talked about change being the great, you know, having a vision of change and ever moving towards ever greater standards of justice. Um, and that that's what civics is about. And that's what democracy is about. It's forward looking. Well, making our education forward looking and bringing kids into that sense that I am developing skills so I can make the world a better place. Kids are very idealistic and we can, we can capture that and, and build and build from there. Um, can I ask a question from um, that, that Suzanne's comments sparked in me? Absolutely. Given your background in cybersecurity um, and your familiarity with the way the, that um, Russian disinformation is undermining our, is building polarities. And in particular, my understanding is that a lot of the anti-vaccine messages on the internet seem to come in from different sources. Um, some are from Russia itself, where there are some terrible messages that are being distributed about, about, about the vaccines that are just not true, but very much originating from, from Russia, um, suggesting that the vaccines are not effective. And then we have good old American style um, snake oil entrepreneurs is what I like to call them who are advocating, you know, remedies that are not that, that don't work, but that are lucrative for them because they're marketing, you know, bottles full of oregano or hydrogen peroxide. So these are clearly threats. They are, 
national security threats because if we're all dying, it's bioterrorism of a certain kind. Um, what's your view on um, regulating disinformation on social media, uh, taking away platforms? Um, how do you how do you see, how do you see that going? Do you, I know that there are freedom of you know there there are speech concerns, um, but I'm I'm feeling like we need to regulate this space and apply more like journalism ethics to it. That it's not just a neutral platform, but that journalism has had ethics for a long time that says you need to be able to show your sources and you need to be able to demonstrate that there's some truth to your story before you broadcast it. What's your what's your take on how we deal with that kind of cybersecurity threat? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I listen, I, I I platforms are not government entities, uh, as you know. So of course, as you as you acknowledge it, you know, they, they are not subject to the First Amendment. Um, they are important public platforms, and because they are so powerful, their decisions around what speech to allow and what speech not to allow have important public policy impl public implications, right? Um, that having been said, we have basically a contractual relationship with them and, and they can set their terms of use and they do. And they ought to be um, making, doing everything they can, both with regard to the techno technological tools they deploy and the policies they create to not allow health hazardous information, right, to be pushed on their platforms, just as they have come around to, you know, no platform today, uh, no responsible platform today um, would hesitate to take down something that said election day has been moved to November 10th, right? If they got wind of that, they would take that down in a minute. Um, similarly, you know, they ought to have these kinds of mechanisms when it comes to um, these very real and clear objective implications for, for the public's health. So I, I don't have any problem with that. I do think one of the things that's going to help us in this regard, um, both from the, from the concerns about the public policy implications of controlling speech and potentially um, creating incentives for less toxic environments, is greater competition among social media platforms. Um, and, and it may seem a little counterintuitive, but I, I really do think that if we gave people an opportunity to vote with their feet, uh, to realistically pick up and move to a platform that had a less toxic, less dangerous, less, you know, kind of environment, um, that that would help. And, and similarly, if speech that, um, that is deemed by the, by a big platform to be harmful to the public. Um, you know, already they have other places to go. Um, to, to some degree, if we don't have policy from Congress on what should and shouldn't be allowed on those platforms, it reduces the concern about censorship, right? If you've got more competition. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, John. Yeah, no, one, that was a wonderful question and, and uh, appreciate the response. And uh, got another question from the audience, and I'm going to start it off, but uh, I want to turn turn it to both of you and your, your kind of domain-specific expertise. The question we got is what elements of civic education could be most impactful 
in bridging our divides. And when I asked uh, Dr. Solomon uh, an earlier question about the Educating for American Democracy roadmap, uh, there is a, a, a pedagogical uh, companion that goes into kind of uh, research-based best practices uh, that answer this question. So not going to elaborate on all of those practices, but one of the most impactful, uh, probably implicit in uh, our conversation today is uh, structured engagement uh, of current and controversial issues in the classroom. And the classroom is such a great place for this because there's actually a surprising amount of heterogeneity in our classrooms of every type, right? Including uh, ideological heterogeneity. Most of us in our adult lives are, are not in environments where there's a great deal of heterogeneity and there are huge benefits to that, right? Um, the other piece is, of course, young people are still figuring out what their views are on the issue, issues of the day. And maybe most importantly, they're in the company of a trained professional, a social studies teacher, who's particularly astute at facilitating these conversations. So uh, I would say that's the most impactful way of doing this. And as a society, uh, we lack those muscles, right? In fact, we've been told uh, not to talk about political issues in polite company. So it's not surprising that we don't know how to do that and the research suggests that the extent to which we do this, it's with people who agree with us, which leads to actually ideological amplification. So our views actually even become more extreme. Uh, so we really do need to, to learn how to have those conversations with people who we might not agree with. And uh, I think the classroom is just a great place to begin that. Uh, I invite uh, our other panelists to, to, to weigh in on that. Uh, but, it, but I think the other piece that has been very implicit in both of your remarks. And I'm interested in your kind of domain-specific responses to this too. So the, the, the science uh, perspective, for example, Dr. Solomon, but media literacy, right? So uh, in order to, to talk about current issues, uh, we need to be media literate because that's where we're finding this information for better and for worse. So I turn to you kind of just broadly um, about how we can bridge these divides through civic education, but would love your views on how we can navigate uh, the, this, this digital information landscape uh, that you were just talking about, Suzanne, in your last remark. I can, I can take a start at that. I mean, I think it's really critical that we not only teach the scientific method and comfort with the fact that findings evolve as we study, but that we also teach students how to evaluate the sources of information how to, um, it's sometimes very hard because there's been some sophisticated um, uh, messaging that's tried to conceal uh, its sources and, and, and copy more respectful sources. So it can be very difficult, but there are increasing efforts to teach kids how to ask a series of critical questions about the source of the information, what they should look for to see if they think it has integrity or not. And uh, we need more curricula and more uh, pedagogy on, on that. Uh, that's, that there is also some organized um, and effective curricula on recognizing uh, propaganda, which is a little bit different, but I think we could learn something from those existing programs. Can I push you a little further on that? Because I, I am not as familiar with, with sciences, but a, a friend and colleague of mine, mine Stan, Sam Weinberg, uh, Dr. Sam Weinberg at uh, Stanford, he leads something called the Stanford History Education Group. Obviously, his background's in history, too. He's a historian, but he's written about how 
uh, media literacy is kind of applicable across the disciplines and his organization's actually doing some work uh, in other academic subject areas. But how do we, how do we specifically focus on developing that, that media literacy in the sciences? There is an essay and I have to do a little um, advertisement here. So I, I, don't, I was trying to put this in the chat, Sean, but uh, a link to it because it's free and downloadable. There's an essay here by Miriam Solomon, who's a philosopher of science who lays out what she thinks such a curriculum should address. So I think this is, it would be great to, to kind of take her philosophical view of how we do it and, and create a project. Maybe your friend is already doing this with teachers and curriculum developers to roll out what that would look like. So we've done the work of publishing her concept for it, but it ha to my knowledge, it hasn't really been developed except with some very in engaging teachers who are trying things out in their own classroom, but not at a national level yet. Wonderful. Yeah. And I, I think that's where Shag is. They're, they're uh, integrating this uh, in a school district uh, across ninth grade subjects and sci science being one of those, but uh, yeah. And, and their, their research to date, just on, I mean, one of the more, more powerful findings that resonated with me was that PhD historians don't know how to navigate uh, the information landscape. Uh, Stanford undergraduates don't know how to do this. The, it's the most selective university in the country. Um, so uh, as a people, we don't know how to do this. So it speaks to how important it is. Uh, Suzanne, any thoughts on, on media literacy, particularly as it relates to your area of expertise in mis and disinformation? Well, I'm really encouraged by the discussion about the ongoing research and, and the ways that people are approaching this. I, do, I think it's so critically important that we teach our teachers and uh, how to have these uh, controversial conversations and then that we back them up when they do have them. Um, yeah, you know, I, I just think it's so sad when teachers suffer the consequences because uh, one parent wrote an angry letter. But um, but I also think, you know, schools, the K through 12 environment is one in which um, uh, it should be about that inquiry, right? And listening and learning and not persuasion. Um, and I and I think part of what happens with with the social media and you know exacerbating the divisiveness is that 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 young people see this as a competition of ideas, and their side has to win. And so what they're really looking for this this notion of of confirmation bias that what they're really looking for is arguments to support their preconceived notions. And and this is why I think so many of the studies that look at efforts at media literacy say it just confirms, further confirms. The more they look, you tell them to go look for other sources and things, it just, they wind up believing more deeply because the whole time they're really looking for backup for their side. Um, and so fundamentally, we got to get back to this idea that this is just an open-ended inquiry. This is about learning. This is about understanding the other side. And so, you know, I think Dr. Solomon talked about uh, maybe this idea that you'd have to take the other side and argue it, right? Um, not to persuade, right? This is not about, and, and so when we have these debates, then you vote, then everybody votes in which side won. No, this is not about persuading other people of your point of view, having these conversations. You are having these conversations to increase mutual understanding. I think what you just said is, is incredibly important. It's not about persuasion. It's about understanding. 
and having reasons for one's views, but not so they can be thrown down the throat of the other person, but so that they can clarify your understanding of it. So that, that's a, that was beautifully put. I really appreciate the both essays, but the the one by Miriam Sullivan, where she talked, I think talked a lot about the way we, we talk about climate change and kind of put, put forth a different paradigm where we, we basically say, Hey, there, there's absolute consensus. Climate change is a real thing, but there are a couple of people that disagree. Right. And, and both sides kind of use that as leverage to drive their point, And she kind of turns that upside down. So I really appreciate um, that frame. Um, and yeah, the whole report is fantastic. Um, so, so we got a comment uh, that, that uh, yeah, I'd love either of you to, to, to weigh in on and happy to do so myself too. But uh, kind of picking up from where, where I talked about at the top of my opening remarks, how STEM became such a success, how uh, the federal government is investing intensely in it, right? $54 a, a K-12 uh, student. And the, this this comment in particular said, we need to mirror those successes. But why did STEM become such a national priority? I have a view on that if I... Yeah, if I go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, STEM became a national priority because for two reasons. One is our cultural identity in the United States. It's very tied up with technological... Um, expertise. It's a part of who we are. It's part of our cultural narrative, but also, and, and I think more importantly, it's a commercial driver. So we, we put all those billions of dollars into STEM because we were trying to drive the, um, it, it, we told kids it was about careers and it is, it is about careers, but it, it's, it's, it's such a huge financial and commercial driver of our society. Um, and I think while it represents a model for how, if only we did for, if, if only we would do for civic learning, what we, what we did for STEM, I understand that point, but we should also bear in mind that um, that was, that's part of the reason we let civic learning, um, we neglected civic learning. I think there's like three reasons why we neglected civic learning. And that's one of the top ones. We, we changed our purpose for education. I mean, in 1780, Thomas Jefferson talked about public education and, and, Amer and U.S. schools were the very first to have public. The, the United States was the very first country to have public schools. And it was explicitly although he only meant for white men, but nevertheless, it was explicitly a civic purpose. The belief that you can't have a democracy unless you have an educated citizenry who knows how to reason together around collective problems. Uh, that was the main impulse for public education, but somewhere along the way, it shifted to preparation for career. And STEM in the United States is one of the biggest, um, most promising areas for, for career development. The second reason we lost, we neglected civic learning was then we just measured, as you said in your opening, we just, no child left behind. We just measured other things. We didn't measure this. And once you don't measure it, it gets, becomes invisible. And then later it just um, weakens. And then I think the third is it's just too controversial and teachers are afraid of it. And so I think one of the smart things about the roadmap is it really takes very seriously the importance of professional development of teachers. I don't think teachers can do this without support and preparation. And I think that's a really brilliant um, goal 
that the Roadmap for Educating for American Democracy has. And I really hope there's resources put into professional development of, of teachers. We do, we would love to do more professional development, you enabling teachers to teach bioethics quest, uh, inquiry, um, because that frightens them too. I mean, it's not really very different. The questions in bioethics, um, should we do human gene editing in permanent heritable ways? Should we, uh, you know, should we change mosquitoes for public health purposes if we don't know the ecological consequences? All these questions are very controversial. Um, and teachers are worried. They often say that they know their kids would love it, but they don't feel they can control the class and they can't control the parents' reactions if the kids go home and say, this is what we talked about in school. So there are ways to manage that, but teachers need help in, in developing those strategies. We absolutely agree. And, and once again, uh, Dr. Summons referring to the Educating for American Democracy Roadmap. Uh, it does have a number of policy recommendations, including uh, pedagogical practices. And a, a big piece, you're, you're right, it's absolutely central to improving civic education in this country is investing in, in teachers. Uh, teachers uh, at, at the collegiate level, pre-service teachers, but then uh, in-service teachers need ongoing access to high-quality professional development opportunities where they develop both their content expertise, but also their pedagogical expertise. So that's embedded in, in the roadmap, and it's also a big part of a, a federal bill uh, that we're working on called the Civic Secures Democracy Act, which would bring significant funding, um, frankly, to every level, but uh, mostly to states and districts. And a big piece of that would be would support teacher training, also a major investment in higher education and an effort as part of that uh, to diversify our, our teaching force, which uh, social studies teachers are even less diverse uh, than the teaching force as a whole. So uh, would set up a new program uh, to address that. Uh, Suzanne, any thoughts on, on STEM and why it, why it uh, has had, had such success and what we can do to put civics there? On the Civic Secures Democracy Act, you may have said this, but I think it's really it's, uh, um, important to note that it is one of those rare bipartisan uh, uh, pieces of legislation uh, in both the House and the Senate has Republican and Democratic co-sponsors. Um, on the, you know, I, I was fascinated, Millie, with your assessment of of why we've invested so much more in STEM, and I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, I I was going to say Sputnik, right? Sort of was the That's was so, the impetus yeah. that made us feel, but it's all consistent. Your what you've explained is why that has been then sustained over the many decades, and what what were the implications of that? Where we suddenly felt a national security threat. From Russia being at yeah. uh, you know ahead of us on this technology front, but part of our cultural identity, as you said, and all the rest of that. What really was interesting to me, though, about what you were talking about is that we the shift to the business focus, right? And and that the, that STEM um, businesses see a, a reason for investing in STEM because they need that pipeline of uh -huh. STEM educated uh, workforce. And part of what we're trying to do with this, both civics as also being a national security imperative, just as as urgent as the technology was for in the wake of Sputnik, um, but also that there is a business case to be made for civics, for investing in civics education. And Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, speaks very eloquently about why he thinks it's important for his workforce 
to have a good grounding in civics education and understand their role in the world, right? And their responsibilities as well as their rights. You talk about rights and obligations. You know, we, 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 we talk about uh, dealing with the divisiveness. Employers have the same divisiveness potentially uh, in their workforce, right? I mean, their, their workforces are microcosms of our society. So talk, in the workplace, talking about civil discourse, right? How to uh, disagree without being disagreeable. What are some of the things we have in common? How do we find a shared value to bring a more a greater unity and cohesiveness to your workforce? That's a that's a business um, imperative. Certainly, respect for the rule of law. Democracy is essential for business, and a respect for the rule of law is essential for commerce. Right? Um, it's essential for innovation both in terms of the protection of innovative ideas. So again, respect for the rule of law and, and, and a strong justice system, um, but also that marketplace of ideas that we talked about, right, Sean, and both of you talked about it. How do we get people to, to, to brainstorm together, to, to take risks, to put ideas out there? You have to have an environment in which you are, you, you are not going to be shot down right away, right? And that's part of that um, civic discourse, civic responsibility, shared sense of community. There are increasingly businesses understand that uh, civics education can benefit them just as STEM does. Thank you, Suzanne. And the, the, Har the Harvard Business School actually uh, published a, 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 the business case for civic education and uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce has partnered on that and has, has really taken a lead. So that is super important. Unfortunately, we're, we're almost out of time. So I uh, want, want to uh, just, just uh, ask uh, both, both Suzanne and Dr. Solomon uh, a, a quick to, to kind of weigh in quickly. Uh, what do we, where do we go next with this? Uh, you, you have such an impressive body of work from your uh, different domains. Um, uh, Suzanne, I know you talk a little bit about civics at work, uh, but, but yeah, really interested. What, what, what are the next steps uh, with your work with respect to this issue? Yeah, well, we are, as I say, we're launching this civics at work. And, you know, if there are folks out there who have ideas about companies they think would be interested in being part of this effort and signing on to a statement of support for civics education and undertaking a commitment to, to do some very practical, real things, you know, feel free to reach out to me at CSIS.org. Um, and, uh, and we're also going to bring this civics at work, I think, to the federal workforce and state, you know, to the public sector, uh, to, to, to government workforces. So that's a big part of what we're doing. And then we're, we're, we're looking at, um, and particularly the national security community, um, how important it is to make sure that, we, that, that our national security workforce has a good grounding in the foundations of our democracy. Thank you. Dr. Solomon? Yes, we are um, doing a variety of things. I'll give you three examples. This summer, we are launching our inaugural um, program in bioethics, almost synonymous with civics uh, education because we're going to be, it's an inquiry oriented approach to helping young people, undergraduates, mostly from underrepresented communities, young people of color. We are advertising it with the historical black universities and colleges, but also in some um, more uh, rural areas of the United States. We're going to bring 20 young people together to give them practice in um, making civic decisions about controversial issues in the life sciences. That's um, something 
that is modeled on something we did for teachers several years ago. So a second thing we'd like to do is to be able to find a way to um, do quite a bit more around professional development of teachers using examples from the life sciences, but really it's a practice in civic learning, um, just happens to be targeted on cases that come from bioethics. I was curious to hear about the, um, the new legislation that's making its way that might be able to provide support for teacher training, because that's one, been one of the challenges that we face. And then th third, we are interested in mounting more public deliberations for the general public, using some well-documented, um, evidence-based um, deliberative processes that have been developed at Stanford. And we're looking for um, uh, different routes into funding th that as well. So the general public, teachers, and students. Thank you very much. So unfortunately, the, the time we have for today's program is, has ended. I uh, want to thank Suzanne Spaulding and Dr. Solomon for their participation. It's a fascinating, rich uh, conversation. Uh, this program and others like it will soon be found on the Commonwealth Club's website at www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Sean Healy of iCivics, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.